if all we do is get in a hurry and listen to consultants that say, see more patient, mm -hmm. then why wouldn't they go try something else, especially if somebody else had an okay experience for a third of the price, you know? Yeah, so, I think, I think so. So that, let's, I'd like to dig, dig into that a little bit deeper um, because I, that's how we've modeled our practice. You know, my dad and, and he's always, um, wanted to take care of patients the best way he could take care of them. And he didn't want to skimp on their time. Uh, I tend to be the same way. I don't see any more, you know, our, my schedule's not any, um, you know, I don't see patients at a faster clip than my dad does. Um, and so, so we've been able to buck the trend of, of trying to see more and see more and see more. And, and, and one of the things that can be easy to think of is, well, that's an easy way to grow. We can just, you know, figure out a way to be more efficient and put patients in and, but, but let me ask you, um, how have you, what types of things in your, during your uh, examination are you looking for and how are you describing those things that allow you to, to demonstrate to the patient your, um, your superior level of care than what they're going to get anyplace else? So one of the things that I do, and I think Brian does it as well, um, the majority of my patients I've seen them before. So mm -hmm. kind of nice. Although lately we lost an associate doc. So I've been seeing a lot more new patients, but I actually, you know, if they've had an Optimap done, I always start with Optimap. I literally come in and greet them and talk to them a little bit. And I actually pull up their Optimap first and I explain what it is, but I most importantly, I focus on like their macula and mm -hmm. I just Mark Hinton, taught me this and he said, you know, your job and my job together is to make sure we preserve that part of your eye. So that means, you know, we need to protect it from the sun. We need to eat right. You can't smoke. You know, I'm caring about the well-being of you rather than just which is better one or two and get a pair of glasses. So I start out with the medical side first and then we do the refraction and, and go forward. And then I always circle back. But that also gets them thinking about how am I protecting my eyes? You know, do they wear sunglasses? Do they have transitions? Um, you know, are they smokers? Um, things like that. So that's probably the one thing that I've kind of flipped around. I like doing that part first, as long as it's a good image. If it's a poor image and I've got to dilate it, then I usually have to wait a little while. But mm -hmm. I like starting that way because it really gets to why they should be there. They think they're there just to check their glasses, but I'm telling them right up front, this is the most important thing we're going to do. And then in the end, I get to summarize everything. And the other piece of it is we've always tried to, well, since we, since about 2009, we've tried to do the handoff in the exam room mm -hmm. to the rather than out somewhere else. That's super powerful. If we do that, they're much more likely to accept the recommendations that we're making. Yeah. Yeah. We've done the same thing. And, um, I think it, yeah, I, I can't stress that enough that, you know, I, I know when it gets busy, it, somebody's not coming back necessarily as quickly as you'd like to. And so there's this reaction to want to take them out front, uh, and, and drop them off and find somebody and pass off the chart. But I think that that three-way conversation of hearing the doctor tell the optician exactly what you had talked to the patient about is just completely, um, necessary to, to mainly having that patient continue to follow through with the recommendations that you've made, which ultimately will benefit them in the long term. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that's, so, so let's say then Pete, that you, um, you were a practice um, that had taken the model of wanting to increase the 
you know, number of butts in the chair throughout the day. And that, that was the model that you went down, but now you're kind of burnt out. How do you shift the other way to go back to this model of, of heavier education for patient, heavier discussion with, you know, face-to-face discussion with the doctor? How can you, how can you go that way? Um, and then other, you know, additionally, I think, well, let, let me ask that question first. What do you think? How do you reverse that? Well, I think first there needs to be some questions that are asked. Um, number one is, are you on every vision plan out there? So first thing I would do is if the reason that your butts are all full or your seats are all full is because you're on every single vision plan, first thing I would do is I would start looking at the low-hanging fruit and say, do I really want those patients? So you do need to do an analysis and decide, are they really profitable? Um, what Brian did a couple years ago when we first t- started taking Spectera, when Vision Source had that relationship built, mm-hmm. was Brian in and he analyzed spect- 10 Spectera patients, 10 VSP patients, and 10 IMED patients. And it turned out that Spectera patients were the most profitable, hmm. not only at the time of the exam, but throughout the year as well, meaning that those people actually came back for other medical care. Mm-hmm. So they're able to look at the whole picture. So first of all, I'd look at those and say, are there some that I could get rid of that wouldn't really cost me much? Because what I'm going to share, several doctors have told me after they have done this, is that they just threw out one exam in the morning and one exam in the afternoon, and they spent that extra time educating the patient. Their revenue per patient went up far greater than the loss of revenue of having that one other person sitting there. So consequently, the revenue per patient times 10 is better than lower revenue per patient times 12, right. as an example. So the idea is you will make up the difference by just being a better educator and making sure that you're, you've got the teamwork that goes along with it. You can do the greatest job in the exam room, and if you don't know what's going on out in the optical, then that's, that's a big issue. So I always use transitions as a great example, you know. You can be the doc that's a big cheerleader fan of transitions and you don't even realize that your optician out there is talking them out of it or yeah. vice versa. So how do you, how do you find, so I think that's a, that's a great transition to talk about, you know, kind of another topic about, I mean, one, we can definitely delve into your, your tactics and, um, and tools that you use with your, uh, to educate patients on um, transitions. But, you know, just, just a recent story. We, we, um, we implemented no two, um, last month and we finally got around to having our, our webinar with them and, and kind of onboarding it. And, um, this is, this is not necessarily an experience I have. We've got a really great team in our practice, but so it's not common for me, but, um, the people that were in charge of, of implementing it were, I think in hindsight, I think this is what they were trying to do is, is it was a, a different process. And so it was, in their minds, a harder process. And so when they went through the webinar, they came back and, and kind of laid out, this is what we're going to have to do. This, this doesn't seem like it's, it's any easier. And um, what it told me was I didn't communicate very well to them uh, the importance of why we were doing what we were doing. It's not because necessarily it was easier, although I think still once you learn how to do the no two process, it's just as easy as faxing. I mean, actually old fashioned faxing. Um, and obviously all the other benefits that come with it. But, but I was, I didn't focus when I was educating them about that, you know, our, our team about this is why we're going to do it. I actually um, was talking more about the security and, um, and some of the other 
uh, things about um, making things paperless and those sorts of things. And I didn't really focus on some of the other aspects of being able to communicate more effectively with other providers and link in with a, a network of providers so that we can continue to grow as a practice and, and communicate with, uh, communicate our findings more effectively. And so what I, I think they were, were hoping for is they'd come back and tell me that it, it seems like it's a lot more work and, um, and it doesn't seem like it's streamlined because they were kind of talking to the points that I was talking to at first. Um, and, uh, and and I think they were hoping I would we would just kind of back off from it. But then once we didn't, and I kind of was able to now re-explain why we were doing it, we found that it's way easier. So I guess my point in saying that is that um, sometimes that's the case where where we know as doctors this is the the next best thing that we're going to do for our patients. This is what we're going to implement for them. Um, how do you know that? Let's use transitions for example that when you bring this on as a, as an, um, as something that you, you decide is going to be great for your patients. And then you have some pushback or you find the staff that maybe doesn't, uh, isn't on board with it. How do you approach that? How do you get the team to be on board? Um, and then how do you work through some of those, those, uh, trouble spots? Sure. So most of the time, what I try to do is really always think about what's the benefit to the patient. So that's the conversation always around the staff. And then I'll use a great example, which usually in this case for transitions, it's a really simple one. I'll say, well, so you're not a fan and yet 90 plus percent of people repurchase them. Mm -hmm. And so you're the person who didn't encourage them to get what we recommended and, or you talk them out of it. And then their best friend gets that same product and loves them who looks bad in that story. And it, the light bulb starts to come on. And then I really, I, I basically, with my staff on transitions in particular, I basically ask them all the questions as to why they're not a fan. Mm -hmm. And I don't expect them necessarily to be a raving fan. I expect them to be an educated, you know, communicator to my patients, but not talk them out of it. So consequently, it's, it's one of those things where we have to always start with what's in the patient's best interest. I mean, I, I, I believe in transition so much that, I, frankly, there isn't anybody, I don't know why you would want a clear pair of glasses other than if that was just your backup pair. Mm -hmm. Why would you not want the protection both indoors and outdoors when you don't have your sunglasses? And when we focus on the macula and protecting the macula, what better way to do that? You know, I mean, we got burned because we did transitions and prevention, which wasn't a good combination. Mm -hmm. but you know, we were kind of double doing it. And you really don't need that when you have transitions. Just do transitions and they're going to get, you know, 85 to 95% protection outside. They'll get their 20 plus percent inside. And to me, that was kind of a no brainer. But we had to really educate our staff. We had a few that weren't big fans. We also told them, I want you to wear these for two weeks and tell me again what it is that you don't think is such a great thing. And understanding how to have those conversations. If they've worn them and they can say, well, here's, here's some of the limitations, you know, it's a limitation, mm -hmm. yep. things that don't happen or don't work. So I, I love to tell people, you know, they're designed not to work in the car because if they did, when you walk past the window, they'd get dark. Right. You know? They, well, they were designed to not fade back instantly because if they did, your eyes wouldn't be able to adapt. Things like that. And when you start using those words, patients and even your staff can, can start to understand why they do the things that they do. Mm. Um, 
it's always tricky though, but I always start with, you know, what's going on. You know, when you're talking about no two, I think that was a mini version of implementing electronic health records. If you think about it, totally, you know, it really is because it's, it's different. You know, what was the major thing, you know, as the doc, you were worried about the security side, they wanted something easier. But in reality, what we all really wanted was the ability to communicate better with PCPs. That's really what it was about. And if that was the role the reason why we want to do no two, then I think that makes everything else more understandable. And if you think about when you implemented electronic health records, you were slower in the beginning, but then when they were a returning patient, oh my God, it was so quick. Right. So it was a win, but you had to get through the pain of that first visit, you know, to yeah. go for I think that comes back to what you were talking before about uh, the, you know, the idea of analysis paralysis. And sometimes you just have to go in and try something and, yeah. and try it quickly and then learn from that. And, and don't be afraid to, I think sometimes we're so afraid to make a mistake. And I'm, I'm like this too, you know, you don't want to make a mistake. And I think um, there are some mistakes that are completely worth making. I mean, you don't make the big mistakes, right? Like I always think about, you know, I, I was fortunate enough growing up that I made some quite a few pretty small mistakes, some medium mistakes. And I learned from those small and medium mistakes to not make the big ones. And, um, and, and you got to do that in your practice. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, the biggest mistake you can make is not, is not continuing to move forward and trying to grow and do some of these other things. And so I think, um, you know, as we kind of think through those types of mistakes and, and just in general mistakes that we can learn from, um, what is, what is a mistake that you've made as a leader that, uh, like I'm talking about no two, that's a small mistake that I, in my communication, but that, that you have learned from significantly. Uh, can you think of anything? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to put you on that spot. No, I know. It, there, there's probably lots and lots of them. I'm trying but to we don't it. remember the mistakes, do we? Right? We, we remember the successes long term. Yeah. I think, I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made was I was not, um, I'm not always as um, overall supportive of my staff as I mm. should. And what I mean by that is um, one, one of the benefits that came out of great game was, is that most of my staff members became better money managers at home. Mm-hmm. And I look at our role as leaders in our practice as helping them be better in, in their profession, but also being better in their personal lives because they're spending more time with us than they are with their family waking hours typically. So I look at them as part of my family. And I think that sometimes I get so distracted by being gone, uh, doing the other things that I enjoy doing that I haven't always done that. And a good example is, is that sometimes communication in an office can be a little bit challenging. And, um, you know, my daughter also did John Maxwell certification. And so she just did a communication game with our team a week ago today. And it was really interesting. And those are the things that we probably haven't been doing. Um, we, you know, we get together, we have our, our weekly meetings, but are we really spending time focusing on personal development and things that we could and should do? And I think we need to take more time on that. And it's something that we're actually working on. And Brian and I've been talking about this. How do we do that in particular developing, you know, managers and or COOs in our practice 
uh, making sure that we're really developing them to their full extent. We've always been a fan of certification, you know, the AOAs, CPO, and all of that, if they're an optician to become ABO cert, you know. But mm -hmm. the reality is that how well do we support it? When I look out at a lot of my colleagues, I, I remember hearing so often, if I train them, they'll leave. Well, what's worse, you don't train them and they stay. You know, that's a cliche. Yeah, right. True. You know, and the reality is if you train them, you should probably pay them a little more, but they're going to be worth more because they're going to provide better value to your patients. And so it's worth it. And most people I've had, I did a, a webinar with a bunch of CEO Summit alumni and a couple of guys on there said, hey, they, they'll rehire people a lot that have left to go to like an ophthalmology practice for more money. Mm -hmm. Typically they were great employees. They just got offered a lot more money. Then they found out that was not always greener on that side of the fence and they wanted to come back. The other guy was like, I wouldn't hire him back. It was an interesting mm -hmm. debate. But the reality is, is that it's the culture of our optometric practice is what makes people want to stay. Yeah. Both patients and staff. But I think the more we can help develop our staff to be the best they can be, as long as they leave to go up in a career, then I'm okay. But if they go laterally, then I feel like I failed. And I failed a few times. Yeah. Well, well then that, that kind of, you know, last couple, we could probably have, we probably need to plan for more of these conversations, Pete, because I think there's so many things I want to pick your brain about. But let me ask you this then, as we kind of finish up with, with kind of this, I, I want to keep it and be respectful of your time here. But, uh, you know, when you think about that and, and trying to train good people and help keep them in your practice and also, um, and also just prepare them, you know, life in general. Do you remember, do you remember a couple of years ago? This was a long time ago, actually, because my story joining my dad's practice was almost the exact same thing about your associate joining or your partner joining your practice is, you know, I came out of school in 2008 and that same fall, the, you know, the recession hit and, yeah. um, and same thing. We didn't, we didn't take any vision plans and all of a sudden it's like, well, we got to figure out a way to do this because, you know, I'm, <laughs> you got to pay me. I got to make a living. And, um, and how am we going to, how am I going to grow this practice? And so that's, I mean, you're mirroring exactly what we're saying. I think one, it starts to become, can we be more strategic with the selection of those plans um, well in advance of recessions? And then, um, and then two, one of the best things that I could feel when I was getting out of, out of school and that time hit, you know, um, my dad's always done a great job of trying to maintain a good culture in our practice. But one of the things that we did together, it was at a vision source meeting. Do you remember, I can't remember his name, but the program was called metamorphosis. Do you remember that? I do kind of. Yes. And, um, and it was at the time where you'd get like a six CD packet, but, but we had these kind of dream boards and, you know, we all went through it as a group and I don't know you were, you're talking about the great thing I think, or the great good or. Yeah. With the great game of optometry? Yeah, the great game. Yeah. Was, was that a book? Well, it's the great game of business is what okay. it is. Great game of optometry is open book management. So our entire staff knows our... Oh, yeah. Us business. too. Yeah. How do you... So then what would you... Okay, so if you can summarize that, because I think that comes into play that, uh, you know, we want our, our, our entire team to know exactly what we're doing. We're all moving toward the same goal. But then, then I've talked to people about that and they give me a lot of pushback on, on we, don't, we don't want our, everybody to know what we're making. And what, so what's your, what's your one response to that? <laughs> I, 
I laugh when somebody says that. I says, well, whatever money you put in the bank that day, that's how much money they think you made. Right. The reality is they have no idea of the expenses to operate the business. So until you open the books up on both sides, they're going to assume that you make way more than what you really do. So to me, that's a simple one to overcome. Mm. The other side of it is the way it's set up is profit is built into it. There's ways to do it. And as, as Brian shared with the staff at one point, you know, as a business owner, I should be able to replace myself and still have income and profit. Otherwise, why would I invest in that business? Right. You just, you just and go invest in the stock market. You own a job. Yeah. You own yep. a job. And I, that's the part that really frustrates me. It's okay to tell people, you know what, I should get at least an eight to 10% return on my money just as the owner. Mm -hmm. You know, and then we pay our docs, you know, the way that we pay our docs and everything. But if there's not that, then why would I be in business? And if your staff can't understand that, then you've not explained it correctly. And I think that's, that was really huge for our staff to understand. It was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. it. So, so, um, so I'm going to probably put some notes, uh, some links in the, uh, in the notes of this podcast. Yeah. So I may be reaching out for you if I can't. Sure. I can't find those. Yeah. Um, and, and then if we think about kind of last couple summary questions I've got would be, um, you know, as you're implementing stuff like that, so that's kind of a, a giant shift. And so I guess it has to come from, you know, the doctors. Mm -hmm. um, what would be, so let's go a little bit more general. So, um, so some of our listeners can kind of get some of these points for other things if they're beyond the, the great game. But mm -hmm. um, what would be, if you had three important rules uh, that you've implemented as a leader for your team and, and your other doctors in your, in your practice? What would those three be if you had to, if you had to pick them? Hmm. Uh, if, it's good for the, if it's good for the patient, it'll be good for the practice. And if it's good for the practice, it'll be good for the profession. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And um, so I'll, I'll uh, we're coming right up on an hour here. Um, if I were going to have three people to talk to that would be valuable for, for a vision source member to hear from. Do you have three off the top of your head? Oh, wow. <laughs> There's so many. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, Mick Kling. Okay. Um, I think Lori Sorensen and Amir Kishnevis. Oh yeah. I mean the three of them, you know, with Amir's new role, but Amir has a very unique practice, but he's an amazing guy that's got so much culture and passion for that culture. You know, Mick, obviously Mick uh, is a numbers dude. Uh, he's, he and Lori are doing the business of optometry right now mm -hmm. for vision source. And um, it's just, it's a very interesting way to look at your business. He talks about profit first, which is a book that's out there. Um, and Lori's really good with staff management and things like that. So those would be my three. Yeah. And I probably list about 30 more, but no, that's, that's yeah. a great start. We'll get to the other 30 when I, when I have you back on. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Pete, this has been a ton of fun. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I think our members are going to, are going to love it. And, um, and, uh, I will talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Chris. Have a good Thanks. one. You too. Be, Be safe. Bye-bye.